Good morning. Welcome to Ordinary Life, an educational offering of St. Paul's United Methodist Church. I am excited about the fact that this week on In Between, yeah, we're going to have Scott Wells. Thanks, Scott. <laughs> Scott Wells is a member of St. Paul's and attends this class. He's watching right now. I'm no, I know because we talked um, Friday night at the symphony. Scott is a professional magician a good one, highly awarded one. And over the years, he's been incredibly generous with me and teaching things and showing things. And he knows a lot about in and of itself. Well, we can't stop crushing on that movie. Like we're both really in love with it. Uh, we, we, we've both said to everyone we know, you've got to watch this movie. So watch this movie in and of itself on Hulu, and hopefully we'll get to crush on it a little bit more with Scott. <laughs> Everybody I've talked to who uh -huh. has watched it has yeah. just been blown away yeah. and usually watched it twice. Yeah, what did we get a text from Matt that said, I'm watching in and of itself, I'm 11 minutes in and I'm crying and I have no idea why. <laughs> so a, there's, there, it elicits some really beautiful human. Powerful thing, yeah. 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 <clears throat> I'm really glad that um, we're going to do that. And I have a special announcement. Coming event. I thought maybe I would hear back from um, John Tucker by now. I have not. Uh, but we have planned a webinar with the author of this book, um, Zero Theology, Escaping Belief Through Catch-22s. I don't, I'm on my second reread of this mm -hmm. book. You, you I'm read? on my first reading. Yeah. What do you think? I, I, I like it. I mean, it, you, it is philosophical. You, you definitely have to have a sort of phil philosophical mind to appreciate and sort of go with the nuances. Or, but I also think you can read it um, without that, without that lens. But it, it, it definitely... You know what I thought while reading this book yeah. is that uh, he, he is reminding me not that he quotes him, I don't think, I don't remember this so far, but when I was in the seminary reading Rudolf Bultmann, who had an emphasis on two things, authentic existence, which was appealing to my psychological bent, mm -hmm. and, and also uh, the Bonhoeffer piece about religionless Christianity. Mm -hmm. And John Tucker's book on zero theology is about if you want to have a liberated religious life, you've got to give up the you religious give life. Up belief. <laughs> yeah, it's actually kind of a relief to me for some of those reasons. I think when I was quite young, I, I asked myself that question: Would I still um, believe in goodness if I didn't have belief? And and my answer was yes, but I got some sideways glances from good Christians when I said that. If there's no heaven, I don't care. I, I'd still want to be a good person <laughs> like you know um richard rohr was the first one i heard quote rabia i think mm. who said um that once she met an angel who had torches in one hand and buckets of water in the other and asked what are you doing he said well they're torches i'm burning down the mansions of heaven and with the buckets of water i'm putting out the fires of hell then we will see who loves god for god alone mm -hmm. i love rabia she's one of the mystic poets that um has a whole section in the book love poems from god actually she's wonderful so we just indicated that you should listen to in between our podcast mm -hmm. 
And uh, if you want to donate money to Ordinary Life, there is a donate button on every page of our website. There is. And you click it, it takes you to a form that directs you to St. Paul's website and it has a memo where you just put Ordinary Life and that money will get given away at the end of the year to, actually we'll probably do several give outs this year due to the economic and COVID crisis. Um, and those go to good causes, so thank you. Yeah, if you missed it um, last week, we announced that just within the last two weeks, we have given away $5,000 for immediate COVID relief yeah. to people in St. Paul's community. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's good. Your, your money goes for good things. Anything else of announcements? I didn't write anything down this no, week. No, I don't think so. Yeah. Can't think of anything. Mm -mm. So no matter who you are, no matter where you are in your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. I'm really glad that you're here and thank you so much for bearing with us during yeah. this time. Um, we're almost a year into this. Yeah. I, I like what you have said sometimes when we're planning just on the note of appreciation. Who do we picture when we're preparing for this? And we both still picture you guys. Yeah. So it, you're in our hearts and minds every week. And, and I, uh, I meant to say this up front, I am so grateful. I have a gratitude log, keep a gratitude log mm -hmm. every day, and I write down Holly Lewis, Holly Hudley every Whichever day. So I'm so grateful yeah. for, to you, for you. Likewise. This is, anyway. Mm. So we're going to jump into it because we're, we're uh, as I said in a preview, we're going to go following some of John Tucker's lead. We'll refer to him today, each of us, um, out on thin ice. Yeah. And if you go out on thin ice, you either make it across or you go through. <laughs> and if you go through, consider it a baptism or a bath. Yeah, or hypothermia. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to make it yeah. anyway. Last week, we started, uh, we, we did, a, did a class in here called what good is prayer? You know that we have been, on the one hand, dealing with the issues of pandemic, racial injustice, the chaos that's going on in our political system, all of that, and trying to use the spiritual teachings, particularly of Buddha and Jesus, to help guide us through this time. So when we did Buddha, we did the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And now that we are doing the teachings of Jesus, we um, picked as a guide the teachings that are in the Gospel of Matthew called the Sermon on the Mount. And we hit that part, we've hit that part in the Sermon on the Mount that talks about prayer. And in our conversation this week, it seemed appropriate to me that maybe we spend more than one Sunday on this because the Gospel of Matthew certainly spends more than one passage on it. And uh, we um, have, have hit that place in the Sermon on the Mount that deals with the Lord's Prayer, what's called the Lord's Prayer. So we decided to take an in-depth look at that. Um, next week, for example, we're going to focus on one word, our. Oh, we are? Just the Oh, oops. That's okay. I focus a little on our today. That's fine, <laughs> because I don't think we can do, can do it too much. We, um, 
our society suffers from an inability to get it together as a culture. Yeah. Our. Yeah. That's a big problem for us. Well, yes. I mean, it gets into a lot of the who do we mean when we say our? Who do we mean when we say we? Who do we mean when we say you? Yeah. And what did Jesus mean when he said, um, I pray to the Father that you might be one mm -hmm. as we are one? It's a complicated mm -hmm. text. Mm -hmm. So last week, Holly uh, had this slide up to talk about the Lord's Prayer as Eugene Peterson translates it. Our Father in heaven, reveal who you are. Set the world right. Do what's best as above, so below. Keep us alive with three square meals. Keep us forgiven with you and forgiving of others. Keep us safe from ourselves and the devil. You're in charge. You can do anything you want. You're a blaze in beauty. Yes, yes, yes. So about 15 years ago, I really immersed myself in this prayer. I had a few years prior to that, about 17, 18 years ago, attended my first Jesus Seminar event, got very involved in Jesus Seminar work and writings. And I, I really focused a lot on trying to know what did Jesus really say, what did Jesus really mean by what he said, and how do the answers to these questions that we come up with find applicability in the living of our lives? Uh, now, I'm not going to belabor this point today, but the first two questions you see on the slide are really not easy to answer um, for a multitude of reasons. For one thing, it was decades before any of Jesus' teachings were written down, as far as we know. Further, um, what was written down was written down in what had by then become the common language of the ge geographical area, and that common language was Greek, Koine Greek. Problem is, Jesus didn't speak Greek, nor did <clears throat> those to whom Jesus spoke. Jesus spoke Aramaic. So consequently, in my own studies, I turned to an Aramaic scholar and Jesus scholar whose name is Neil Douglas Klotz. He's written a lot of books about prayer, body prayer, prayers of Jesus, prayers of the cosmos, this book. And I don't know that you can read it, uh, but Matthew Fox has a statement on the cover of this book that says, Reader, beware. Though this book is brief, it contains the seeds of a revolution. As I said, Douglas Klotz is a Jesus scholar, and he's an Aramaic scholar. And he came up with a rendering of the Lord's Prayer that goes like this. And we'll probably come back to this prayer over the weeks as we go through. Um, I have some comments I want to make up, but... This is a prayer that I read every single day. Mm. O cosmic birther of all radiance and vibration, soften the ground of my being and carve out a space within me where your presence can abide. Fill me with your creativity so that I may be empowered to bear the fruit of your mission. 
Let each of my actions bear fruit in accordance with your desire. Endow me with the wisdom to produce and share what each being needs to grow and flourish. Untie the tangled threads of destiny that bind me as I release others from the entanglement of past mistakes. Do not let me be seduced by that which would divert me from my true purpose, but illuminate the opportunities of the present moment. For you are the ground and fruitful vision, the birth power and fulfillment, as all is gathered and made whole once again. That's the Lord's Prayer, translated from Aramaic, given the interpretation of Neil Douglas Klotz. Now, what we call the Lord's Prayer appears in the text that we're using in Matthew. It appears in the Gospel of Luke, but in a much briefer form. Um, in the narrative that was created by the Jesus Seminar, the Lord's Prayer comes very late in the ministry of Jesus, and it is just these words. When you pray, say, our Father, your name be revered. Now, <clears throat> this reflects the best and most recent biblical scholarship that thinks that Jesus himself did not construct what we call the Lord's Prayer, like much of the narrative that we have. It was created by the early followers of the church. It's been added to, it's been edited over the centuries. But nonetheless... The Lord's Prayer is the only part of the Christian Testament that is repeated by millions of people in churches around the globe in almost every worship service, and many millions of people pray it every day when they pray things like the rosary or, in my case, the version that I do from Neil Douglas Klotz in my own uh, daily spiritual practice. So this week, I suggested to Holly that we go through this prayer kind of phrase by phrase and see the ongoing relevance and applicability to this time of pandemic woe and social unrest, political unrest, racial unrest, all economic unrest, all of that kind of unrest. And um, I had a, a friend, I have a friend in California who sends me jokes. Mm hmm and I really like what he sends me most of the time. And he, he sent me this. He said, imagine the pandemic is a word math problem. Mm -hmm. It would look like this. You're underway proceeding down a river at two miles an hour, and your canoe loses a wheel. How much pancake mix would you need to reshingle your roof? Right. Um, I have to say some word problems that I see in my kids schoolwork make about that much sense. <laughs> so you can imagine they struggle. Um, yeah, I mean, how to ground ourselves in this most used prayer during this time of much chaos. I have come, I shared with you this week that I've come to the potentially frightful conclusion that I, I don't pray like this. I don't pray to someone very often. I, I, don't believe, I don't believe in that out there something to which many prayers are prayed or interpreted. I've not said anything like dear God for a very long time except <laughs> as an expression of shock or dear God <laughs> or surprise. Um, 
and I think, you know, the last time I probably prayed like that, I was very young. I was all sharp angles and youthful. But even I, I'm the person who, in prayers before meals that begin with dear God or Heavenly Father, I keep my eyes open and watch everybody else fidget. I, I was not raised in a praying household. I didn't know the Lord's Prayer until I went to high school where we had a non-denominational chapel and we said it non-denominational, but we said the Lord's Prayer every week. <laughs> One of my friends says that at family gatherings, uh, his, the part of the family he's talking about is very conservative. Uh -huh. very, and he, he calls those prayers before meals, long prayers. He calls them Jesus, we just prayers. Jesus, we, we yeah, just? Je, Jesus, we just. Yeah, we just Jesus, thank we you. just. Yeah. We have a book for the kids called Don't, Don't Let Aunt Mabel Bless the Table. And the whole book is about her very long prayer. And, uh, and Aunt Mabel is a, you, you kind of get the picture that she's like a black Southern woman. And she just goes on and on and on about the prayer. It's, it's really funny, but it's, it's a cute book. Um, anyways, so, you know, so I, I learned this prayer. And I say all of these things. I don't pray to. I don't pray dear. And yet I feel like the act of praying is quite reflexive. So if I cry out, why? or please, to no one in particular, that's that reflex kind of acting out. Generally speaking, in fact, I think it was um, C.S. Lewis, who I, who I don't read very much, I don't, I don't read The Apologist very much, but he, he once said that we are wired to pray or to, for belief in this way in the same sense that a young child is wired to cry out, mommy, when they are in need. Mm -hmm. So generally speaking, prayers that indicate preeminence, that God is out there or there's some celestial dimension to get to are just, they're not compelling to me. So how do I deal with this first line in the Lord's Prayer? Our Father in heaven. I don't believe a thing about this, literally speaking. So I suppose so much determines, is determined by who is our, what is Father, and where is heaven? We've been taught from Bill to really consider that maybe heaven is right here. Maybe we create or co-create our ideas about heaven. I appreciate Michael Morwood here, and I plan to return to his book, Prayers for Progressive Christians, over this time. But he asks the question, who or what are you asking me to imagine when I pray? And then your question, who is the you doing the praying? You mentioned that you could, we, we could spend a whole class period on the word hour. Well, I kind of dealt with that a little bit this week, so hopefully it won't repeat too much. But on the one hand, hour is collective. Oh, forgot that one. Hour is collective and holistic. When we pray our Father, who are we including in the hour? Is it really everyone? Is it just our tribe? Is it just believers? Our is also possessive, connoting ownership. So something is mine, our Father, belonging to me. How in the heck can God or anything that resembles God belong to anyone? This sense of possessiveness of God might be the first problem and maybe also the first liberation of prayer, a paradox, I think. But it feels like the first utterance of prayer ought to be like a gasp of awe, or maybe a question, are you there? <laughs> Humans form attachments to things that we possess, which foster that sense of ownership 
ownership leads to a longing for understanding and knowing. And that tends to lead, the way that we understand and know things is by attributing human characteristics to, to things like our dog. <laughs> That's called anthropomorphism. And the attribution of human characteristics to a god, an animal, or an object helps us to relate to it. We might say something like, my dog loves me. And I'm convinced my dog does love me. At the very least, he depends on me for food and scratches on the belly. But it's an anthropomorphic projection of how the dog feels. This is an interesting aside, though. I read this. <laughs> Look at those sweet eyebrows. <laughs> this is my dog, Tito. And he does have, I mean, look at those eyes. He has the most gorgeous eyes. I read that dogs' eyebrows have been radically reshaped throughout the time that they've been domesticated. In other words, perhaps before the domestication of the dog, they either didn't have eyebrows or they weren't very expressive. But as over time, the development of eyebrows in dogs, and my dog has kind of Groucho Marx eyebrows. I actually had a little video in which we saw his eyebrows going up and down as I was talking to him. You know, that kind of face <laughs> that dogs make. But they make their eyebrows raised to become more expressive and readable to elicit something like love, maybe, we think, or maybe it's just food, just to get us to respond. The dog has adapted to us as we have formed relationship with it. And I wonder if prayer isn't also us kind of trying to raise our eyebrows at God, trying to adapt to God, right? We want to see ourselves in everything. It's a form of relating that's not necessarily bad, but if we can also accept that saying something like our father is a metaphor that extends in many directions. Our father is a metaphor for God. God is a metaphor for Yahweh, which means he brings into existence whatever exists, which to me is for the mystery of evolutionary reality. The paradox here is that Yahweh is as intimate as our own breath. That's part of evolutionary reality. And it's as unfathomable as something like infinity. There's a funny story I found in, in my research <laughs> this week <laughs> and speaks to the kind of arbitrariness of words that we use in these scripted prayers, these prayers that we've been handed down. Does it really matter, you'll see in the story, if we say bread or chicken? Does it matter if we say our father or cosmic birther? So the story is as follows. The Pope and Colonel Sanders of Kentucky Fried Chicken are having a conversation about, the change, about a change to the Lord's Prayer. Your Holiness, Sanders says, you must make another change. Instead of, instead of giving us our daily bread, make it give us today our daily chicken. I cannot change these words. The Pope was astounded. They are ingrained in our very heritage. They negotiated until the colonel finally said, look, a half a billion dollars will go to the church right now if you change those words from bread to daily chicken. The Pope couldn't see any way of saying no and reluctantly agreed to the offer. He returns to the clergy chambers where fellow cardinals are waiting and he says, I've got good news and bad news, folks. The good news is, we now have $500 million to work on all of our churches. Well, wow, they say. How could there be bad news? What is it? He says, well, we lost the Wonder Bread account. <laughs> That's a great story. <laughs> you know, your dog, 
uh, I have a dog and I, I swear the dog's expressions vary during the day. In the morning, when I'm doing my morning practice, Jet will get up and come and put his head in my lap. And he, I, I'm sure it has something to do with some early primal puppy connection. Yeah. You know, and he wants. You're the mama dog. A mama yeah. dog at that point. Mm -hmm. Later today, he will come into the kitchen yeah. and sit and just look at either Sherry or me with, okay, it's time. Yeah. Treat. And he'll, he'll do it till he gets it. Yeah. Yeah. My dog also has a look of shame when he knows he's done something wrong. Yeah. They yeah. Could. I mean, I'm putting that. At who knows what he really feels. He just feels like, uh-oh. <laughs> so here we are making our journey between the no longer and the not yet. And paradoxically, each of us must do this journey by herself. And... We can only do it if we do it together. Both of those are true. There's a journey, as, as our Progoss said in a, in a workshop that I attended, that, that he did this, um, this solitary work we cannot do alone. But the alone part of it is that we have to decide for ourselves what's true, what matters. Buddha said, don't just believe me, don't trust me. Don't trust the sacred writings. Go find out for yourself. Go find out whether what I teach is true or not. Jesus simply invited those who heard him when they wanted to know about what his authority was. He just said, why don't you come and see? Why don't you come and follow me? See what turns out to be true in your own experience. He never required people to believe a thing. He just said, Come and follow. And of course, as the journey got deeper, the consequences of following became more severe, uh, which we have managed in our acculturation of Christianity to somewhat discount. Now, the, to get in a position to see what's true is for many people in the beginning a, a, a very uh, wrenching experience. Because most of us find out, usually pretty early in the spiritual journey, that the truths and the values that we inherited from our parents and others in our tribe are not the truth. And at that point, as we said last week, we have a choice to make. We can either make those clothes fit us, or we can step outside the bounds of the tribe. And to step outside those accepted truths can be very upsetting, sometimes terribly so. I think the, that conventional Christianity has so domesticated Jesus that it's kind of hard for many people to see that he really was somebody who was stepping out against the values of his time. He went against conventional thinking. And... Um, we're going to return to this point today and probably many times over the next few weeks as we do this prayer. Giving up what we think is true is disconcerting mm -hmm. and it's disorienting and it is a lifelong process. It's not one that we just get done, we keep continue doing it over and over. Like, for example, for me, reading John Tucker's book is a, 
eye-opening experience even for me at my elder age. So that's one reason the truth is hard to know. It's disorienting and it's disconcerting. A second reason that it's hard to know uh, is, that, is that the truth is not easy to know. Here's one scene from the January 6th invasion of the Capitol. Immediately after that, there were people, President Biden included, who said, this is not who we are. We are much better than this. Or some form of that sentiment referring to the fact that the insurrectionists do not represent who we are, or America's much better than what you're seeing in these pictures. There was immediate pushback on those comments, uh, with others saying, this is America. Uh, we showed very much our true colors. Unleashing a white supremacist mob is nothing new to America. Bernice King, who is daughter to Martin Luther King Jr., said, We need to stop saying this is not who we are in America. Indeed, this is not who the United States should be. But denial won't make the injustices and inhumane ideologies less so. We can't change without the truth. Now, I got an example of how complicated and difficult a simple sentence in English can be to interpret. I got this idea from a colleague, Russell Johnson, who teaches at the University of Chicago Divinity School. I wish I had thought of this, <laughs> but I didn't. And I got to give him, yeah, do that. Got to give him credit for this. He said that years ago, he saw a public service ad on a billboard that said, Chicagoans don't drink and drive. Now, this sentence can have multitudes <laughs> of meanings. Um, it could mean Chicagoans never, ever drive drunk. It just doesn't happen. Or it could mean Chicagoans, as a general rule, rarely drive drunk. Or possibly, Chicagoans rarely, if ever, drive drunk, and this is something that is distinctive about them. Or how about this? If you don't drive drunk, you're a Chicagoan. <clears throat> or people who drive drunk are not real Chicagoans. A person may seem to be in Chicago, for example, by living in Chicago, but if they drive drunk, they do not count as a real Chicagoan. Or related to that, if you drive drunk, you're betraying what it means to be a Chicagoan. Your actions are at odds with the characteristics that make someone a Chicagoan. Or if you drive drunk, you're acting like a deficient Chicagoan. Your actions are at odds with the ideals and virtues to which people who live in Chicago aspire. Now, more likely it means Chicagoans, like other people, should not drive drunk. <laughs> and yet again, Chicagoans specifically should not drive drunk. Drunk driving may be fine in St. Louis, but not in Chicago. <laughs> what if you're a Chicagoan in St. Louis? Can you drive drunk? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't know. <laughs> That's open to interpretation. I said yes too quickly. Yeah. Now, apply this to January 6th. The events of January 6th reflect a long-standing anti-democratic, white supremacist, paranoid tendency that have been part of the United States' DNA from before the founding of the colonies. Nor is it consistent with the values and virtues 
that we as Americans think are worth preserving. Both statements are true, but neither is true without the other. I love the way that um, this woman, mm. Amanda Gorman, boy, didn't she, and she's going to be on the in the Super Bowl today. First poet no, not in ever. the Super Bowl. Well, she's I hear she's playing quarterback instead yeah. of Tom Brady, but and she's reading a poem at halftime. Maybe before I don't but, know when. I think it's before the game. Yeah, she's the first poet ever to appear in this way at a Super Bowl. I love the way she put it in that poem. It's because being American is more than a pride we inherit. It's the past we step into and how we repair it. And the word and in that sentence is the critical, mm -hmm. critically important word. I saw her interviewed on Stephen Colbert. She's amazing. Yeah, really, really fiery young woman. So the same thing can be said about following Jesus. The church... And that's such a all-inclusive term. I don't know what you think of when I mean church. The church, universal, the everybody who claims to be under the umbrella of Christian, whether they're far right or far left, um, has has had woven into its DNA a cozying up to politics that has frequently led the church to align itself with the rich and the powerful and deliberately exclude those to whom Jesus most pointedly directed his message. There's no way that we can deny that as part of the church's history. And at the same time, the church has been able to maintain this teaching about as you do it to one of the least of these, you do it to me. Both are true but one is not true without the other. So I got a text from Phil, my dad, when the preview went out, what in the heck does praying naked mean? And I think this is the first thing that it means is that to pr pray naked, we need to deal with denial. We need to sort of deal with the fact that um, we are in denial of certain things, certain truths, if you will. And so, nakedness implies that we are stripping away those sort of layers of denial on the one hand. We strip away the levels of denial and the beliefs that protect us from what is. From change too. And from yeah. change, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is the first rule of sort of liberation theology is that we must see the center or the powerful for what it is in order to begin to move away from it. We cannot be in denial of that. I read something this week on the Center for Action and Contemplation about faith and doubt. And I also read about the evolution of belief that Brian McLaren writes about. We've learned here from Bill from many years of being taught by this wise man that faith is not, or the opposite of faith is not doubt, but certainty. To think that we know for sure. To have a certain amount of comfort with uncertainty is to embody faith. And we maintain a kind of anxious faith when we want our religions and rituals to provide certainty about this life or the next one. When we claim that we know exactly what God is saying to us in prayer, who God is, what the dog's eyebrows are saying. When we claim to know that need for certainty, I believe, is a way to stave off our fears about death. 
that I think that this is one of the things that John Tucker talks about is that sort of absolute fear is this kind of fear of what happens next. And ask yourself this, would you continue to believe what you believe? Pray the prayers you have been taught to pray. Live by the laws of compassion you've been taught to live by, even if there is no guarantee of heaven and no archetypal God to make such a guarantee in the first place. This is one of the first hard questions asked in Zero Theology. Mm -hmm. And on that note, uh, Brian McLaren, again, who was writing for Center for Action and Contemplation this week, wrote about his spiritual growth process that moves from simplicity to complexity to perplexity to harmony. This is kind of over a lifetime. In simplicity, it alludes to, as a child maybe, we learned how to pray correctly. Our posture was kneeling, our eyes were closed, our hands were held together. There are, of course, many postures of prayer. That's just one. In complexity, we learn how to pray effectively. In other words, what words do we use when we pray with complexity? We might have learned the Lord's Prayer, for instance, or a dozen rosaries. In perplexity, the next level, we begin to wrestle. We wanted to know the answers. We plead with God. We echo Jesus maybe in saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Or why the heck am I praying anyway? <laughs> I think that perplexity is kind of that feeling of, is this even working? My experience with prayer says that we don't really get answers from God. It just is a way to help us hold the questions. In harmony, and you can also look at this as sort of stages of life development. We, as children... We are more simple. We are more kind of black or white thinking. As we grow, we learn to hold more complex thoughts. Then we learn to question those complex thoughts. And at some point in our old age or beyond midlife, we hope to become okay with the fact that things aren't always okay. In harmony, we can hold something like grief and joy in the same breath. And we can know that something as ubiquitous or widely used as the Lord's Prayer can take on new meaning or non-dual meaning. I think all of these stages are important, and I think that they're socially important too. So as a society, with our social ills, we so often want to jump very quickly from simplicity to harmony. We bypass complexity and perplexity. And I think it's really okay to sit with, grapple with, wrestle with <laughs> complexity and perplexity as a society too, because we can't bypass we can't go we can't deny what's at stake and go straight to harmony so i want to do a little bit of teaching religious literacy yeah, go for, for a it. moment that's your jam <laughs> uh so listening to you and based on conversations that we've had this week about what we're going to do today I, and i have to confess i i don't want to risk boring people by repeating stuff that I've said in here before. But, but do your daily spiritual practice. People. Well, that I, that I don't, <laughs> I, that's not a problem. I can do that. It's okay. You get used to it. As a matter of fact, next Sunday, the title that I, I gave to the, what we're going to do is the, the promises and perils of a daily spiritual practice. Mm -hmm. What I'm talking about repeating over and over is that in what I call recent Christianity, which is what has developed in the last 150 years, mm 
we have suffered the consequences of those, this is what I'm going to repeat, those two things that we have to overcome to make it on this journey. And one is this belief in cosmological dualism, mm -hmm. and the other is the belief in individual salvation. Yeah. Those two things. And the fallout from those are God is out there. Mm -hmm. God's up there, out there, usually male, usually angry. That's cosmological dualism. And individual salvation causes us to focus on morality. Mm -hmm. You know, who's got the truth, who doesn't? What's the correct sexual orientation? What's the right belief? All of that stuff. So none of that is what Jesus emphasized, talked about, or demonstrated. Mm -hmm. I don't know what the cosmology that Jesus himself embraced was. I assume it was the one that was part of that culture at the time, Jewish um, certainly God out there, righteous judge coming, all, all, all of that. But nonetheless, Jesus was this Jewish mystic who had this way of saying, I and the Father are one and so are you. Mm -hmm. And you got to take care of each other. We are all in this together and, and created this, this community. Morality things like the church has focused on the last 150 years, you can do that stuff. You can either do it or not do it. You can be sexually appropriate as the church says you ought to be and all these other rules and regulations that you ought to, to do, be. But whether justice is being done to the poor, whether we are dealing with systemic racism, those are things that are pretty hard to, to measure and they're also messy to get involved with. Prayer or some sort of contemplative practice. We may get rid of the word prayer for a while <laughs> just to call it, because I think when you say that word, it means this right. kind of thing. It's kind of like the images we get when we say God. How do we reshape the images of prayer? To me, prayer is a willingness to face into the mystery of the sacred. Mm -hmm. and, and it's not a problem to solve. It's not a technique that you have to get right. Um, one of the questions that I would like for you to keep before you as we go forward is how do you consciously and deliberately live your life in sacred mystery? How do you do that? You certainly don't have to do the things that I do because they're not guaranteed to be uh, helpful to you. Uh, it's helpful for, for me to wear my prayer beads because they can instantly ground me, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm aware of them. Somebody asked me why I wear them, what, whatever. Uh, now, we all spend our lives immersed in the sacred mystery. We just are not aware of that all the time. In all of the Jesus narratives that we have, the only thing that Jesus' disciples are recorded as ever having asked him to teach them to do was how to pray. Now, you got to get out of your mind that this was one single transaction that one day the disciples got a delegation of two or three and sent them to Jesus and they had pads in hand. <laughs> Although I'd love to get a hold of Jesus' journals. <laughs> Dear diary, they, mess, they misinterpreted me. Or maybe again. they went with their iPhone app, so their recorder right. app and said, teach if us only. how to pray. Yeah. It, did, it didn't happen th that way. 
You've heard me say before, Jesus taught in parables. Jesus' disciples taught in parables about Jesus. It was the natural thing to do. They were following his example. It took years of their reflection on their experience with Jesus to craft this prayer. So um, going back to what we said about the truth earlier, it's very difficult to put together an image of Jesus at prayer. Do you have an image of Jesus at prayer? Well, if you attend St. Paul's worship services when we were in the sanctuary, you saw this every Sunday. Mm -hmm. Some words, the stained glass window, the Jesus, the Jesus window. Jesus at prayer. This is a famous painting of Jesus at prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. More likely, Jesus at prayer looked like this. More likely. Because when, and we'll get to this in, in Matthew, when Jesus said, go into your closet and close the door, houses didn't have closets in that time. The prayer shawl was closed around the face to give one uh, privacy. Mm. <coughs> so exam for example, in John's gospel, Jesus is not seen as a human, but more as a divine person. So he had no need to pray. Mm -hmm. Pray. He just talked to God and the disciples overheard those conversations and they, that was a teaching tool in the Gospel of John for, for Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew that we're going through, Jesus clearly teaches people not to pray in public. In Luke, Jesus not only prays a great deal, but he encourages his disciples to do the same. In Mark, he doesn't pray at all. And in the Gospel of Thomas, which I think is the earliest collection of Jesus sayings that we have, Jesus doesn't pray. So if you're trying to create a, an image of how Jesus was at prayer, just be aware that what we construct is what we construct and probably not what was because we don't really know. After the death of Jesus, a group of disciples put together what I think, or as a collection of sayings, one of them we have surviving as the Gospel of Thomas. Mm -hmm. The other one is a Q document, and these became Q followers. Not, not Q, Q or, or non. non. <laughs> not Q or non followers. <laughs> right. The Q is, a, is a short for the German word for source, because both Matthew and Luke use this source to derive what they say of the, the Jesus narratives. So these early followers of Jesus continued his tradition. They gathered for meals. They gave thanks for the food. Um, have difficulty praying at a meal, uh, do what my Buddhist friends do. They will take their mm -hmm. hands under their plate and simply lift it up, not say a word, and put it back down. It's a recognition, as Holly has reminded us about Thich Nhat Hanh, seeing the whole world, the whole cosmos, in the food that is mm -hmm. before us. Mm -hmm. So they would sit around the table and they would do what we do now. How was your day? How did it play out? How was it at work? How was it in Hebrew school? Or whatever they did, what did you learn? And they began to incorporate these things in, into their lives. They wanted to keep the energy going that they had experienced in that first empowering community. Now, if they did this, they were not going to be popular. People in power wouldn't like them. Imagine that you were 
in the families that Jesus called his disciples from. The belonging group was the most powerful force in the world at that time. Mm -hmm. So when people left their tribe, they were doing something that was incredibly offensive to the whole ethic of, of their culture. Um, religious leaders wouldn't like these people. And it was pushing, it was in pushing back against this opposition that the documents that we have were first created. And they were created, Matthew for one group of people, Luke for another, John for another. They were created to keep the story going and, and to preserve some of the sayings of the teaching of Jesus. So phrase by phrase, this prayer that we call the Lord's Prayer was constructed. Now, no doubt they had heard Jesus do the same. But they constructed it in a way that was useful to them. It kept his memory alive for them. It kept them energized. It bound them together as a community. And so they created it. Father, your name be revered. Let your reign come. Give us the bread we need for today. One of the guys in the Jesus Seminar wrote a whole book on the Lord's Prayer on this phrase. Just this phrase, imagining what it was like for Jesus and his disciples who had nothing, who lived on the road, who were dependent on the generosity of other people for their survival to cry out, bread, we need bread. Forgive us the debts to the extent that we forgive those who are in debt to us a big part of Jewish culture was, was not to loan money at interest. Hmm. And please don't subject us to test after test. This was a brilliant source of strength for these people that kept them focused on their risk-filled journey. It contained the self-critique of debt, for example. Uh, it declared where their loyalty was to God, the God of Jesus, and not to Rome. And it was their way of tuning in to the presence and power of the sacred in their lives. That's what prayer is. It's interesting that as we're even going through this right now, I'm having different experiences of line by line, and we've now put up what roughly three different versions of the Lord's Prayer and, and giving us the bread we need for today. Let us not live in excess, but let us also not live in depravity. You know, it's kind of... That, that ask is how do we live with what we need and not more and not less. And that's, um, that's something American culture really struggles with. The root of the word bread in the story is also the same um, etymology of the word that's used for manna mm -hmm. in the Hebrew story, mm -hmm. just enough mm -hmm. for today. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I mean, we've, we've created, we can, we've constructed a culture which is very hard to live. We've made it very hard to live just day to day because we're planning for the future. We're planning for our grandchildren. We're planning for, and for some of that that's beneficial, but it takes us so much out of our bodies, out of our present moment. At the beginning of the pandemic, we got our faces rubbed in the fact that people couldn't get enough, couldn't yeah. get enough toilet paper, couldn't get enough right. of... Right. Various things. Yeah, a hoarding culture. Mm -hmm. And there are people who can't afford to hoard, who can't afford to go buy 20 things of toilet paper <laughs> in one day. But anyhow, um, so I'm appreciative that even in this moment, I'm just, I'm experiencing the words differently. 
But prayer is like poetry for me. I've said in here last week even that poetry is a primary way through which I experience prayer. I think both help us to experience the ineffable, the numinous, the nonlinear. Poetry is very rarely a story with a beginning, a middle, and the end, but good poetry, I've been told, has a concreteness to it that can be related to as it sort of explores the more uh, numinous or emotional ideas. They are approximations of truth while making space for the fact that we may never find certainty. Both prayer and poetry offer are, are good ways to be in struggle with paradox or to be in struggle, period. You said to me this week, let's just give you a new name since you love this struggle so much. What's the feminine for Jacob? Well, you can call me Jacobina. Um, Jacob means heel catcher. This is a, a Rembrandt painting of Jacob wrestling the angel in the Old Testament story. And he was named heel catcher because it said that he was born grasping his brother Esau's heel. They were twins, and, but Jacob was born minutes later. And then later he tries to usurp Esau's role as the firstborn son. Later in his life, of course, we know the story, or many of us do, of Jacob wrestling the angel, which is really emblematic of his wrestling with mystery, his fate, and also vulnerability. From this... Jacob walks with his hip gets thrown out of joint by God and forever he walks with a limp as a reminder of his vulnerability and mortality. So in this story, he gets tangled up. He goes face to face with God in the struggle. Uh, I think that this is also a very um, uh, Jewish sentiment of, of prayer, meaning self-examination, sort of wrestling with who am I? And who is God to me? So there is struggle in prayer. And it may sound silly, but I read this differently this week than I ever have before. God struggles with humanity, perhaps, as much as we struggle with God. In other words, like the dog who adapts his face to our readings of his face, God and us are co-evolving. We're co-adapting to one another. You know, as we, it, when we prayer, we can grapple with, um, we, we grapple with things that we have on a human level, with racism, nationalism, classism. These are also our existential struggles with God. Our struggles with each other are like small pictures of wanting to make sense of this sort of sacred mystery. If we did not have struggle with one another, the world would make sense. But how we play out the struggles with one another is also how we play out our struggles with God. When we learn to see all else as an extension of self, it's possible we can learn to see God or sacred mystery this way too. I think prayer, poetry, however it is that you hold silence, can be that liminal space that can sustain the struggle. And hopefully through a practice of contemplation, we emerge from that a wounded healer and not a wounded wounder. I wonder what God would say if he were to pray. He, I just said, hey, he so reflexively. If God were to pray to us, to humanity, what would it sound like? Would it start the way that we pray to God? My humans who occupy earth, stop damning my name. Instead of, dear God, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. 
Or does the prayer that God gives us sound like the bird song or the haunting cry of a whale or the rustling of leaves? I have heard it said, especially by creation theologians, that the cosmos longs to be adored. That is, of course, applying human emotions to the cosmos, that the cosmos has longing. But the way that we can understand it is through adoration, through wonder. So perhaps the hour at the beginning of prayer is a way of calling it to us, a different way of saying, beloved, come close to me. It's a language that can alert our minds to the fact that we are not actually separate from that to which we pray or about which we contemplate. We're included in the hour. It alerts us to what Martin Buber called the I-thou relationship. Hour is possessive, but it is also intimate, relational, and collective. So, so as we go forward uh, in the weeks ahead, delving into this prayer, I, I want to uh, offer you a basic rule for your daily spiritual practice. And that basic rule is to assume that you are not awake. <laughs> Carl Jung said the only unforgivable sin is to remain unconscious. And yet our culture all the time seduces us away from the present into some other space and to be numb. I got a story um, from um, Anthony DeMello, I, I would take the time to tell you, DeMello experienced the same fate that Michael Morwood did. He was a Hindu Roman Catholic priest who was a spiritual teacher, very much beloved by the people. Cardinal Ratzinger, who became the Nazi Pope, at the time was head of the Committee on Correct Doctrine, and he censured DeMello into oblivion. But DeMillo was a wonderful storyteller. He told the story about this very proper aunt who was visiting her niece one time and for an extended visit. And the niece uh, and her husband had three children. They were both very active in their parish and other things. And after a week or so, the aunt said to her niece, you know, I've been here for several days and I see you and Mike. You're very busy. You're very devoted to each other and to your children. You're active in your work and your community and your parish. You do work with the homeless. I've been here all this time and I've never seen you pray once. When do you pray? And the niece said, well, I pray in the shower. <laughs> when I'm in the shower, the cascading water hits my body and I feel the waves and I let the tension go and I just try to be aware of being in the moment. And the aunt says to her, you mean you pray naked? <laughs> yeah, I do. So as we go forward and talk about our responses to the Lord's Prayer, I want to invite you to pray naked. Hmm. I, I'm not talking literally. You can do that in the privacy of your own home if you want to. <laughs> but I'm talking about what it means to get rid of these things, these defenses and beliefs that we use to protect us from what is. And again, I want to put in a plug for John Tucker's book on zero theology. I really think that it would help you during this time. And you want to read it before he comes and speaks to us anyway. Strip away what you got. Be with the mystery. Yeah. I asked a good friend. I have a really good friend who has just completed divinity school. And I love talking to him about these things. And I texted him over the last couple of weeks and said... 
how do you pray? And his answer to me was, how don't I? So the indication is that he is always praying, that living life in a state of sort of courage, openness, and compassion, which is what John Tucker calls transcendent living or the liberated religious life. I, I love that terminology. Is an act of prayer and a continual act of transformation. And to transform requires a death of something. When we change, something else must fall away. Absolutely. Yeah. So the most naked prayer I can think of, and I own um, um, an, an, a, a, this print, I own this etching, is Kathy Kolowitz's depiction of Jesus taken down from the cross. The two thieves here are bound and looking on, and she imagines them as women who had very few political and social rights in Germany at this time. And so this, this depiction is just after Jesus has prayed, why have you forsaken me? It is a very naked and vulnerable prayer. And the inscription at the top, which you can't read very well, says, from many wounds you bleed, O people. The peace and the words are a kind of prayer. Mm. So I think that naked prayer, if you will, opens us up to a kind of grief and then liberation from it. I read this version of an opening line of the Lord's Prayer that says, Dear one, closer to us than our own hearts, farther from us than the most distant star, you are beyond naming. The Hebrew text knew that God was beyond naming and often wrote it like this. All of our words point at this approximation of trying to understand something that is not understandable. And so when we can pray our Father while suspending belief that such a phrase sums it all up, if you are at all into the sacred feminine, our Father doesn't work as a literal term. It feels too binary. So I've been wondering if actually a decent spiritual practice might not be to go line by line with the Lord's Prayer. Here you go. And rewrite it for yourself. With what language would you replace our Father who art in heaven? I would love to hear what some of you come up with. Right now mine is, it could change next week too. Oh, mystery, incomplete and evolving, material and sublime, here, there, and everywhere. So the purpose of prayer is not to ask God or tell God what to do. It's not to change God. It's to listen. It's to change ourselves. It's to attune ourselves to the nature of what is so that we can be nurtured and nourished for the journey. Prayer is intended to bring clarity so that we can see each other and that we can see ourselves and thereby be equipped for the journey. So we will pick this up here next week to look at the word our because it's so crucial for the survival of our culture that we learn to get it together in almost every way. So no matter who you are, no matter where you go this week, remember this, you carry precious cargo, so watch your step, and we will see you here next Sunday. Bye. <laughs>